big deal. We didn't get Presbyterians at Moore College to preach at chapel. And he was interviewing him before the sermon and he said, Ian, you know, why you are the, the up-and-coming star student. You know, you came through Moore College yourself. Why, why on earth would you decide to become a Presbyterian? And Ian, as quick as a flash, said, well, you know what they say, Peter, becoming a Presbyterian is the fast track to becoming a bishop. And I thought that was hilarious. I said to all my friends, oh, that's really funny. Get that? Like Presbyteros, Episcopos, they're all the same thing. That's, that's really funny. And all my friends said, that's not funny. <laughs> ah, Anglicans, they need to get a sense of humour. Okay, we're going to look now at God's Word and we're going to be turning to the book of Jonah. So if you'd like to open your Bibles, because I know from last week's exhortation, lots of people have brought their Bibles to church this morning. If you're struggling um, to find where the book of Jonah is, like I am right now, it's found right next to the book of Obadiah. (laughs) So that should really help you. I'm going to be reading, in all seriousness, no, from God's Word. So let's quieten our hearts as we sit at God's feet and we hear the living God. Um, speak to us through his word this morning. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Would you please join with me in prayer? Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the maker of the earth and the seas. 
and we come together today to worship you, to sit quietly at your feet and to be fed on your word. For we are hungry and we are thirsty for truth. Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would give us receptive minds, minds that are illuminated by your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you give us discernment. We pray most of all, Lord, that you would give us soft hearts. For like Jonah, we are by nature rebellious people. If but for you calling us to meet with you, and first taking the initiative to reach out, we wouldn't be here this morning, Lord. We would be doing something else, living for our own pleasures, our own lusts, our own desires. So, Lord, as we meet together this morning as your people, we do so with great excitement because we know that we are meeting not just with each other, but with you, the true and living God. So bless this time, we pray. Bless me that what both I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it. Lord, we commit this time in your hands. We ask for your blessing. For we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. About 10 years ago, I actually wanted to write a master's thesis on the book of Jonah. I had a really good idea and I was all set to start my research, which would have resulted in about a 50,000 word thesis. The supervisor I had been assigned though highly doubted the historical accuracy of the account that you just read, or we just read from. For him, it was more on the level of an allegorical story, uh, a religious myth, or maybe some kind of spiritual parable. But it definitely didn't really occur. And so I had to weigh up whether I had the energy to continually argue and debate with him on something as basic as the historical reliability of the Bible. After much uh, prayer and soul-searching, I came to the difficult, but in hindsight rather obvious, uh, decision that it was much better to plant a church than it was to defend an obscure thesis. And so I let go of my own academic desire for personal glory and I focused my attention on my family, on my church and in writing just more generally. I've noticed that a lot of people have the same kinds of hesitation when you come to the book of um, Jonah as my academic supervisor had. But if you turn over to 2 Kings chapter 14 for a minute, this is the great benefit of bringing your own Bible to church. 
2 Kings chapter 14, you'll see that there can really be no doubt that Jonah was a real historical figure. Indeed, as a prophet, he was used by God to proclaim to the northern kingdom of Israel in particular that they were going to reclaim the land that had previously been lost. In fact, the prophet Jonah ministered at a time when the boundaries of the northern kingdom of Israel had been restored to their former glory as they were under King David. But just because they were doing well politically didn't mean that they were doing so well spiritually. That's often the way it is, isn't it? When things are going well externally, they're not necessarily going that well spiritually. In fact, my wife and I had this um, not competition, but observation that whenever we go through country towns, wherever they may be in Australia, the nicer the town or even the nicer the church building, the weaker the church. Because it's so easy to focus on the external things than the internal. As we saw last week, the Lord was repeatedly warning them that if they didn't repent, uh, they'd be sent into exile, and in particular by the hand of the Assyrians, of which Nineveh is the capital. So we read from verse 23 of 2 Kings 14 this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jash, uh, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. To give you some idea of how bad that evil was, Jeroboam the first didn't just create one golden calf, but two. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. If that sounds weird, the modern area of that place is called Nazareth. Now, this might really surprise you, but one of the things scholars have the most problem with today in the book of Jonah is not that he was swallowed by a fish and then regurgitated. It was the prayer that Jonah prays in chapter 2. Not just that it was uttered in the belly of a great fish. Now, whether it was a whale or not is unclear because the Hebrew word is unspecific. He goes, technical moment for today, the Hebrew word is gad. You know what it means? Literally, great fish. Now, the problem that a lot of academics have is that Jonah uttered this particular prayer at all because it's just so different from the rest of the book and it really sticks out like a sore thumb. For example, if you're familiar with the whole book, you'll realise that the chapters before and after, Jonah is this faithless, melancholy guy that basically has a death wish. Whereas here, he's full of hope and faith. He is like the ideal Israelite. 
Not only that, but the literary content of chapter 2 is so beautifully stylized, it reads like it had been written by King David or Solomon. It, 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 you'd think that it belongs in the book of Psalms. Whereas all the other times in the book of Jonah, Jonah is recorded as speaking like, well, let's face it, like a moody, tuna, a moody teenager who only gives you a one-word one answer. How was school today? Good. Speak to anybody? No. That's like Jonah, before and after. Ironically, people have greater difficulty in digesting the authenticity of Jonah's prayer than the great fish probably had in digesting Jonah. But there's a reason why Jonah's prayer is here. And it's not just that the Holy Spirit inspired it, but Jonah's prayer serves a really important purpose. And it's the change that the Lord God Almighty sovereignly does in each and every human heart of supernaturally working within us to produce saving faith and repentance of transforming us from the inside out. One of the goals that I have this year is to visit everybody in the congregation. And when I get around and I visit everybody, one of the first questions I ask is, how did you become a Christian? And I've yet to meet anybody that says, oh yeah, I just decided, I thought it was a good idea at the time. Because conversion is the greatest miracle of all. People will invariably say, in some form or another, I was running away from God. And like a fellow uh, that I was speaking to at the parents' cafe at youth group on Friday night said, and God hit me over the head with a spanner. That's really the story of every Christian's testimony, isn't it? God tracked me down. I was lost but now I'm found. And the problem is, is that in the human heart, you don't even realise you're lost. That's the greatest miracle of all. Not that the Lord who had um, power to over the earth and the sea could command one of its creatures to do his bidding. That's precisely what you would expect uh, the creator of everything to do, isn't it? No, the greatest miracle of all is that God can change the most stubborn human heart, even yours. As Thomas Carlyle once wrote, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama that was going on inside of Jonah. Before we consider the content of the prayer itself, though, we need to first of all step back and see how this entire prayer is framed. For it really begins in verse 17 of chapter 1. If you still have your Bibles open, have a look at this with me. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And it's where the Lord, once again, sovereignly provides this great fish. Our modern English Bibles um, break up the chapter differently to how Jesus, as well as the the Greeks of Jesus' day would have had things. You see, but historically, chapter 2, 
began with verse 17 of chapter 1. And it therefore provides the context for which this entire prayer uh, was to occur. Because as we saw last week, Jonah was as good as dead. Even a reputable publication such as the Encyclopedia Britannica, anybody still got that at home? Acknowledges that a person surviving for three days in the belly of a whale or a certain kind of shark is not only plausible scientifically, but every now and again has actually happened. It states that while the situation would have caused enormous discomfort, there would have been enough oxygen for someone to breathe, which only makes sense because whales need air in them to be able to float to the surface, otherwise they'd just be like lead, always sitting on the bottom. Not only that, but a hundred years ago, get this right, they uncovered archaeological evidence in the ancient site of Nineveh of a mound literally named after the prophet Jonah. So there's good external witness that Jonah was there. This isn't a myth. It's not a legend. One of the things that I find amazing is that the chief idol that the Ninevites worshipped, get this right, was a fish god called Dagon. So it's highly likely that the Bible is having a little bit of a dig at the Assyrians and their folly for their particular form of idolatry. You worship a fish god. Well, let me introduce you to the servant of a one who commands the fish of the sea to do immediately his bidding. Won't you put your trust in him? Maybe that's why the Bible spends so little time regarding this great fish, whether it's a whale or a shark. It's just really not all that surprising that the Lord, the one who made the earth and the sea, would do such a thing. And so the aspect that men and women have written books and books and books on, Scripture passes over basically in one or two verses. It's just not that surprising. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Simple. What is it then that is so significant about what Jonah prays? Because that's the bulk of the chapter. The Bible's not here to defend whether or not Jonah was really in the fish or not. He was. Just as Jesus was three days in, in, the, in the belly of the earth. Well, for a start, notice how Jonah's prayer follows the trajectory of the, let's say, whale, right to the very bottom of the sea. In verse 3, he talks about being on top of the ocean amongst the waves and the, and the currents. Then in verse 5, the water has enveloped him and he's got seaweed wrapped around his head. And then finally in verse 6, he's on the ocean floor where the roots of the mountains are and he has literally hit rock bottom. Now, as I said before, I think we can all relate to this, can't we? 
In fact, I've already heard from so many of you how the Lord brought you to himself in orchestrating his providence that all the things you used to trust in, those idols of your heart were taken away, that when you had nothing left, you turned to him. One of my lecturers at Moore College, Bruce Smith, who has since gone on to glory, once asked us in class, he said, have you been bleached in the belly of the whale? Has that ever happened to you? What he meant was, have you ever felt the loving discipline of the Lord? If you've been a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ for any length of time, then you will immediately understand what he was referring to. As the book of Proverbs, as well as Hebrews states, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. My next door neighbour growing up used to say, when my mum and dad would invite them to church, I don't need to go to church. I don't need God. I don't need that crutch. And it always surprised me, that expression, because I thought following Jesus was so hard, I thought I needed crutches. But when Jonah is at his absolute lowest point, or Nadir, what does he do? Well, take a look again at what he says in verses 7 to 9. Because rather than dwelling in his misery, Jonah looks up to where the Lord, and in particular to the one and only place where atonement for sin was performed. Where the high priest would offer the sacrifices necessary to secure a person's forgiveness. That's where he looks. See, Jonah directs his prayer to God in his holy temple. He acknowledges that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, like the sailors in chapter 1. And then he com completes his repentance by saying, but I, with, with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. I was going to have for our New Testament reading this morning, Acts chapter 4, because it says there in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That is what theologians call the exclusive claims of Jesus. There is no other name. You can call on it, but it won't save you. Oh, I know people say that all religions lead to God, but they're lying. That's like going to Hobart Airport and saying all planes lead to Sydney. Good luck with that. You have to look at the board and work out where you are putting your who you're putting your faith in to know where you are going to go. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Salvation comes from the Lord and Him alone. You see, the Scriptures constantly warn us as believers regarding the ever-present danger of idolatry. Do you believe that? 
I'm not just talking about, you know, the little religious statues or figurines. You know, we laugh, don't we, of um, those particular cultures which we just, we scoff and dismiss and, and look down our noses at of being primitive because they worship a God with six arms and six legs. I know plenty of Australians that worship teams that have 22 arms and 22 legs. Their whole personality, their whole, whether they're joyful or despondent is based upon how their sporting team is going. According to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, idolatry also involves greed and lust. Let me slow down at this point and give you three of the most common manifestations of idolatry today. And I'm sure that you will identify with at least one. The property market in Hobart has increased by 34% in the last 12 months. 34%. Especially during that time, have you felt your contentment ebb and flow or wane? depending on your financial situation. That your heart has become anxious, maybe, or depending on how well it's gone for you, pretty self-confident due to the nature and the size of your property portfolio, then it's an idol. One of the biggest idols people worship today is that of their house. I used to think that a person's home, you know, as the old saying goes, a person's home is their castle. I don't think that's true anymore. I think in 21st century Australia, for many people, a person's home is their temple. Might even go further. A person's home is their God. Just as popular an object of worship as this, and let me be frank, is pornography. And can I just say to us, before you try to dismiss it or rationalise it away, it is just as common among men as it is amongst women. I didn't realise just how insidious or pervasive this issue was until a young woman came to me in church one day and she shared with me her own struggle. And she was by no means alone. Unofficial surveys showing that viewing sexually inappropriate material, either visually or in writing, because I do think there is some distinctions there, although even that is dissolving, is just as common amongst men and women. Like me, you might question at first the accuracy of that finding, but let me assure you, it is true. The problem with the idol of pornography, though, is that the Bible says this, it is a false god which many people go to for worship. 
especially when you're tired or stressed or maybe just bored. As though those couple of examples aren't challenging enough, the third biggest idol that we're tempted with today is food. I have a daughter named Hannah who is a really good cook. She's an excellent teacher, but she's such a good cook. I say, Hannah, I think you're wasted on teaching. Why don't you just cook? She's like, Dad, I can't just cook for you. Anyway, she was telling me about this interview a while back with this famous American food critic. And he was asked what the reason was for the explosion. Have you noticed this? There has been an explosion of cooking competitions and TV shows involving food. MasterChef, the list goes on, right? And so the critic was asked... What happened? Why are we all of a sudden, that's the thing we love to view. And again, please excuse me, but the person was saying it's like the same thing with pornography, isn't it? For some people, it's an addiction. And he said, well, this, this is what he said, I'll quote him. That's a really interesting question. I'd have to say 9-11. 9-11 being the terrorist attacks in America. He said, at 9-11, the entire country wanted comfort. And they turned to food. Food was all of a sudden the only thing people wanted to watch. And I remember what happened to the ratings of food networks at that time. He said, it was unreal. If anybody ever had any doubts about food's ability to bring people together, the critic said, it could be completely dispelled by that one incredibly tragic event. It's a fascinating insight and I think he's exactly right. Because it's comfort that goes to the very heart of not just food, but especially salvation. You see, if you wanted to diagnose, to self-diagnose this morning, what is your idol, ask yourself this, what is the thing, the one thing that if it was taken away from you, your life would not be worth living? If you lost the home, if, (laughs) if you couldn't enjoy a certain sort of lifestyle, if maybe your parents took away your phone. Whatever you go to for comfort, whatever you say, I just couldn't live without, that is your idol. That is what you're trusting in. Do you see? Food can in practice become a very convenient idol. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul describes this error in Philippians 3, verse 19? You know, I think, what? He talks about food being an idol? Sure does. Describing the, the life of the person who rejects worshipping Jesus, he says this, 
and it's pretty strong words, so prepare yourself. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind, Paul says, is on earthly things. The underlying problem with idolatry, though, friends, is that you can't hold on to the one and focus on the other. You literally forfeit the grace that could be yours. You miss out on the eternal joy of God's salvation, of his comfort, of his strength. And you miss out on on all of that. That's why we must intentionally and ruthlessly be putting our idols to death. John Owen used to say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Jesus says this, you just cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve, listen carefully here, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Not simply money, mammon. That is, anything that the Creator has created as good should never be given the worship that He Himself deserves. That's mammon. Whether it's sex or food or housing or phones, whatever it is you go to for comfort, that is mammon. Not just the money in your wallet. What the Lord is calling on us to do is throw away our idols and put our trust completely in Him. You might think this is radical. There was a person in my congregation up in Sydney who was a very successful Chinese businessman. And uh, he collected Ming Dynasty vases. Now, if you know anything about Ming Dynasty vases, they can be into the tens of thousands of dollars. This particular businessman had one particular vase which he loved, And without going into all the details of it, it was a particularly religious one with this massive dragon. Uh, And it was of, it was quite central to, in his mind, the worship of the idols that he'd left behind. And he had a choice. Do I keep this beautiful Ming Dynasty vase worth tens of thousands of dollars? Or do I throw it away? Do you know what he did? He cast it into the depths of Sydney Harbour. Now, you might be thinking, oh, he could have sold that money and given it to the church. That's what, Judah, that's what Judas said, remember? If something is wrong, it's always wrong. If it's an idol, then it must be cast away. You can't flirt with it, you have to kill it. The whole of chapter 2 is bookended, though, with God commanding the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. It's easy to overlook this, but that's also another miracle, isn't it? Because whatever this great fish was, it could have spat Jonah out. Well, it could have bitten him in half, like tragically we saw this week happen to the ocean swimmer. 
But he could have, if even spitting him out, he could have spat him out in the middle of the sea. And then he would have been again as good as dead. So not only is Jonah saved from the belly of the beast, he's also saved from the danger of drowning. And he's spat out onto dry land. Like God provides his own ship to get his servant to where he needs to go. Sorry, Jonah, you're going in the wrong direction. Let me help you out here, mate. There you go. The word for vomit, though, only appears a handful of times in the Old Testament. And they're nearly all in the book of Leviticus. In fact, just turn over to Leviticus chapter 20 with me and we'll consider its significance briefly. Because in many ways, Jonah represents the people of Israel because Jonah's name actually means dove. And a dove was the national symbol for Israel. And so what happened to Jonah, I think, was a warning of what was going to happen to God's people if they too didn't demonstrate a massive change of heart. If they didn't stop worshipping the calf idols and start worshipping the Lord. Which, as we'll find next week, even the cattle repent. Even they go into sackcloth and ashes. So the very things that the Israelites are worshipping, these golden calves, the people and the animals of Nineveh, they themselves worship. They worship the Lord. Leviticus chapter uh, 20, verses 22 and 24. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them, God says, so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you, because they did all these things. I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. You see, as we read last week in Matthew chapter 12, this whole incident with Jonah in the belly of the whale is a prophetic sign of death and resurrection. A sign to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who questioned the power of God to save. More than that, of his mercy and grace in giving people a second, a third, a fourth, an infinite amount of chances to respond. Even for people like Jonah who are faithless and rebellious. Now, do you remember, friends, the Bible reading we had just a little while ago from John chapter 21? Significantly, Peter was asked, not once, not twice, but three times, whether or not he loved Jesus. Why? Because Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus three times. Can you imagine being guilty of having committed such a sin? Of publicly denying that you were a Christian? Could you imagine even someone like a teaching elder denying that they knew Jesus? Not once, not twice, but three times. What would you think of that teaching elder after that? Would you ever listen to them again? I'd be reluctant. 
But Jesus takes Peter and he restores him. Isn't that incredible? He says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And you'd be tempted to think that, that, well, that's it. You'd be tempted to think, well, there's no more hope for you, especially being using God's kingdom to spread the good news about Jesus. You've denied Jesus. But thankfully, the Lord keeps on chasing us down and restoring us. Not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. You see, we have to be careful, don't we, of being like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of not just thinking that there's no resurrection, but of thinking that for me, yes, for me, there is no hope. God is the one who binds up the injured and heals the brokenhearted. The Pharisees were the ones who sent them away. If you brought your own Bibles along today, then you'll see that just before Jesus reinstates Peter in his service, do you know what happens? There's a miraculous catch of fish. An incident that not only involves a man named Simon, son of Jonah, Yes, he's also called Simon, son of John. The Dutch will appreciate this amongst us. Is it Jacko or Jaco? Don't answer. <laughs> this is an incident that involves a man named Peter, son of Jonah, who, which proves the truth of what? Of Jesus' resurrection. That's why Jesus explicitly sits down and has breakfast with his disciples. It's to prove that he really has risen again from the dead. Even some religious leaders, as terrible as this is, even some religious leaders today think that the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus was akin to wishful thinking or even mass hysteria. If you hear a religious leader who says that, can I just give you one word of advice? Flee. Because they are not a servant of Jesus. I'll go even further. They're a servant of Satan. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and you hear a teacher of the Bible say that, they are telling you there is no hope. There is no salvation. Because the grave conquered Jesus. And it will conquer you. That's how serious it is. You see, they say maybe the appearance of Jesus, well, maybe at best it was a ghost. But ghosts don't eat bread and fish. They don't sit down and eat breakfast with you. And mass hysteria or wishful thinking doesn't cause the creatures of the sea to do what they're told. Not unless, of course, the one who made the earth and the sea was standing there right in front of you. Do you know how Peter first recognised that Jesus was the Lord? It was through a miraculous catch of fish, wasn't it? The one who has now conquered sin and Satan and death once and for all. 
If you're not familiar with the incident, let me just recap it quickly. Jesus tells Peter and his friends to throw their net into the water just after they've been fishing all night and caught nada. And when they do, they what they told or asked, they catch this incredible number of large fish, 153 to be precise. Again, just because it really happened. And even with such a large number, the Bible says, incredibly, the net wasn't torn. Now, as well as proving that Jesus has total control over every aspect of creation, you know what? I think this is a metaphor for what Peter's future ministry is going to look like. And that is, Peter, son of Jonah, is going to be, as Jesus himself had promised, not just a fisherman, but a fisher of men. And they're going to come from every nation under heaven. He's going to catch people for God, not just fish. And not just any people, as in his own people, but first of all the nation of Israel and then peoples from amongst the Gentiles. Isn't that the mercy and grace of God? And can I say, friends, if God did that for Peter, if God did that for Jonah, he will do that for you and me. You see, all too often we're tempted to think that God has given up on us. My sin is too great. My zeal is too poor. Now, don't get me wrong. As we've already seen this morning, the Lord is an awesome and holy God. And as such, please hear me. Because you don't want to miss this. He will discipline and punish those he loves. The most terrifying verse in the Bible, I think, is in Romans chapter 1, where God says, I hand you over. I will, I will let you do what you want to do. That is terrifying. Because it means that the true and living God will no longer be involved. He will no longer convict you. He will no longer discipline you. He will no longer show his love to you. You don't want that to occur. Jesus himself said so memorably to the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You know, the word spit is literally in the original New Testament Greek, the word for vomit. So just as Jonah was vomited out of the fish, so too the Lord, our Lord, warns us that he will spit us out of his mouth if we start to become complacent, if we start to become lukewarm. When we're enamoured with the things of this world and we flirt with our idols, when we act like we already have, like the Laodiceans, all that we need, just listen to what Jesus says in verses 19 to 20 of Revelation chapter 3. He says, Those whom I love, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We often use that verse as an evangelistic exhortation to unbelievers, don't we? But in context, this is what the Spirit of Jesus is saying to his church. This is what the Spirit of Jesus is saying to you and me. Here I am. I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. Do you hear the Spirit of Jesus? It's to those who claim to be his followers, but by their actions deny him. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you, please, consider what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Open the door of your heart and eat with him. For Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead. And he's calling on you this morning to come and put your trust in him and to follow him. To believe in the one who is actually greater than Jonah. Who doesn't just come back from the dead, from fish. Because Jonah didn't really die. Jesus really died and then he came back to life again. Will you repent and believe? Will you follow him and trust in him? Will you respond to his call, just as the Apostle Peter first did, and leave all your nets and follow him? Will you? You see, the greatest miracle of all is conversion. It's that you're here this morning, and that the greatest miracle of all is that you might change. Because only God can do that. Summoning and then later discharging the duties of something like a great fish, that's nothing to God. Just like creating a great storm and then calming it in an instant or sending all the fish in the sea into a net when he says so or especially bringing someone back to life when they've been dead and buried for three days. Only God can do that. And that's exactly what you'd expect the one who made the earth and the sea to do. The greatest miracle of all is that he can change even the hardest human heart, even yours. He can turn a stubborn and rebellious prophet into a willing and humble servant. Albeit next week with still a massive chip on his shoulder. But can you feel yourself being inextricably drawn to him, even against your will? Don't wait for God to bring you to hit rock bottom until you do. No matter what you've done, God has not given up on you. If you're here this morning and you're listening to this, whether it be here or online, Christ is calling on you to come, to repent and find forgiveness if you would just simply look to him in his heavenly temple. You may have experienced his rebuke or discipline, but remember this. The Lord only does that to those he loves. If the Lord hated you, he'd leave you alone. He'd hand you over to whatever your sinful heart wanted to do. But if you're hearing his voice this morning, if you're sensing the convicting work of his spirit, then you are blessed. For the Lord God Almighty, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is calling you back to himself. 
to fulfill the plans and the purposes he has predestined you to do. And as God's word itself promises, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day that the Lord Jesus returns. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, Almighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you've humbled us this morning as we've listened to your word. You've exposed the idols of our heart, the rebellion of our thinking. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will now heal us and restore to us the joy of your salvation. Give us all the grace, the supernatural power to look to you in your holy temple. Lord, where we have been convicted of our guilt, may you assure us of your love and of your forgiveness. Where we have been wayward, may you strengthen our resolve to follow you as our king. And Father, as we respond to you now in prayer and in song, we ask that you would lift our hearts, that you'd minister to us by your spirit, and that we would walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing now, brothers and sisters. And as we sing, let's lift our hearts to God. Let's lift our voices to one another. And let's sing his praises and pray to him in song. Let's stand.
Now we go with these words from the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, we just have a, I invite you to sit down. We have a couple announcements that we need to get through. Uh, so if you have a corner post here, um, it has the announcements that is, and what's happening in the life of our church. Uh, two that I just want to bring.